Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Well, good afternoon, uh, everybody, and welcome to today's webinar hosted by the uh, University of Bath Institute for Policy Research. And um, thank you for joining us online. My name is Nick Pierce, and I'm the director of the Institute for uh, Policy Research at the University of Bath. And um, today's uh, uh, event is to launch a new book by Stephen Muirs, uh, Culture and Values at the Heart of Policymaking, an Insider's Guide. And I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Stephen this afternoon. Uh, and also by Jill Rutter. Um, Jill, um, who's from the academic think tank, uh, UK and Changing Europe. Uh, Jill is going to be giving some responses to Stephen's uh, presentation um, and then we'll open it up for a, a Q&A. Uh, I should introduce both Stephen and Jill a little more. Stephen is currently Head of Strategy and Market Development at Big Society Capital, and he's held a series of roles in, uh, in government, most recently as um, Director of Criminal Justice Policy at the Ministry of, of Justice. Uh, and he's also worked in the Cabinet Office, the Department for Energy and Climate Change, the Homes and Communities Agency, amongst others. And before taking up her current role at um, the UK and Changing Europe, Jill was uh, a Programme Director at the Institute for Government, looking at better policymaking and also at uh, Brexit policy questions. And before that, an experienced uh, civil servant herself, having worked in the Treasury, in Number 10, in DEFRA and other departments. And people will be familiar with her work, I'm sure, through uh, her regular writing and commentary for uh, radio, television and the papers. Now, Stephen's book has its origins in a, a visit he made to Bath as a visiting policy fellow. Uh, and then in, the, in a very good lecture he did for uh, our postgraduate students, which he then turned into a fuller uh, book-length treatment of his key themes and at the heart of the issues he's going to discuss are the role of uh, culture and values and the impact they have on political success and uh, policy success and political accountability. I, I won't say any more, I'll ask Stephen to, to begin in a minute to let us know uh, his, his argument, his thesis, what's in his book. Um, I just have a couple of housekeeping notes I need to share with you all. Firstly that those of you watching your cameras and microphones are switched off. If you have a question uh, when we come to the Q&A session, please submit it via the chat function. And when we've done that, we'll respond to those. I can then uh, moderate the discussion uh, with those questions. Uh, the session is being recorded. So filming and photography is taking place and subject to no technical difficulties, the session will be available online as a podcast and a video uh, at a later stage. Uh, so thank you very much for uh, joining us. And I will uh, now kick off today's discussion by handing over to Stephen. Stephen, over to you. Thank you very much, Nick. I'm just going to share my screen so you can see the slides I'm going to use uh, for my talk. Give me just a minute. So thank you very much, Nick, for, for the introduction. Um, I hope people can hear me well enough and that the internet is uh, doing its thing to keep this smooth. So what I'm going to do in the next probably half an hour or so is give an overview of the main argument in the book. Uh, there are three sections. First is why culture and values matter to policymaking and determining policy outcomes. The second bit is how that then affects politics and particularly political accountability for policy. And then the final section are some suggestions for things that maybe as policymakers we might want to think about doing differently as a result. The book itself starts with a short bit of defining what I mean by culture and values, which I'm not going to go into in much depth today. Um, suffice to say the, the key elements to that are around culture as being around unspoken and unwritten norms in organisations and societies, values being around ethical judgments, 
and also wider worldviews and views about how fundamental views about how society and the world operates. And it's those elements and how they fit together that play out in policymaking in the ways that I'm going to talk about. So the first point about why culture and values matter to policymaking. The first one is perhaps the most obvious point in the book, which is that culture is part of driving outcomes. I'm sure many of you will have heard the phrase that um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Well, I would argue that culture also eats policy outcomes and policy tools for breakfast or indeed lunch or dinner. Um, for those of you familiar with these sort of public policy literature, um, the work of Michael Lipsky on street level bureaucrats is critical here. And what, what he means by that is the way that policy make decisions made in Whitehall or Westminster or Washington or wherever get filtered and turned into reality by the day-to-day -day actions of frontline workers, the teacher, the police officer, the person in the welfare office. And the culture and norms among those groups of frontline workers are absolutely critical to um, determining what policy outcomes citizens actually experience. This photo um, I've put up here, this is a health centre on the White City Estate in West London. Uh, in the book, I use as an example to illustrate this sort of impact of the front line and cultural norms is an example from when I was a non-executive director of the Health Trust responsible for this part of West London. And we kept having this experience whereby um, GP practices in the area would take very, very different approaches to implementing new guidelines on the best clinical approach or rolling out a new kind of treatment that had been demonstrated to be, to be more effective. And we looked at some detail about why there was this huge variation and was it that practices with particular demographics in their um, client group or that were in particular areas or had particular funding challenges uh, were better or worse at implementing new and more effective clinical treatments. And actually we found most of those patterns didn't really show up at all. But what, what did repeatedly come out was um, actually what pointed to more a set of cultural factors that practices run by GPs who'd started their careers at a certain time and particularly before a certain time tended to have a very different approach to ro rolling out new treatments and new approaches than, other, than others did, implying there was a set of cultures and practices and norms that had evolved at a particular time that those GPs were coming through the health service or earlier on than some of, some of those running some of the other practices that had made a, made a significant impact. There's also really interesting work on this culture impact and outcomes in the international development literature. Uh, and I, again, go into some of this in more detail in the book, but there's some very interesting research that's been done looking at uh, taking particular countries where there's the same policy framework across, across the nation, but then different cities have very, very different economic development paths, even if actually some of the underlying aspects that might, you might expect to support development around skills or access to markets or whatever might, might be similar. And some research both in, in Indonesia and also in China um, has pointed to the, the, the unwritten norms and sort of cultural practices, particularly among elites and elites who control financial resources in different cities, as being an important part of driving outcomes rather than perhaps any of the more classic uh, objective, in quotes, um, facts around economic development. So culture driving outcomes, I say, is possibly the most obvious point I make in the book, but an important place to start. So the second thing that culture drives is legitimacy. And what I mean by this is an acceptance that, a, um, that by the, the citizenry, that the action of a state is legitimate, can be accepted and can be cooperated with. Now, in one case, and I put up an example here of the, the poll tax, in one sense, this is simply an extension of the first point that without legitimacy, it's very hard to implement certain types of policy. And therefore, culture is again 
driving outcomes as what is legitimate in a given society is heavily driven by the values base and the culture that are present in that place. And I put up the poll tax example here because uh, there's clear evidence, I think, in the, in the fantastic uh, book, uh, Failure in British Government Policies, Pol Politics for the Poll Tax, which I'd recommend um, to anyone, that one of the reasons the poll tax failed was that it was fundamentally not seen as legitimate. It was not seen as fair, crucially, uh, by the people it was being imposed on. And then it turned out to be almost impossible to actually collect it. If I go a bit further than this and say legitimacy is not only important because of its impact on how a policy is implemented, it's also really important in and of itself. We, we value legitimacy in a policy uh, sort of intrinsically, regardless of its impact on outcomes. And just, I illustrate this in the book with a, with a bit of a thought experiment. So uh, imagine you've got a small town and a proposal to build a large new housing development on the land next to the town. Uh, in one scenario, that development proposal goes through a public inquiry, an open process, people put in objections or counter, counter suggestions, and at the end of the day, after all that's taken into account, uh, permission to go ahead with the development is given. Then contrast that with another scenario where the decision to allow the same development to be built is taken behind closed doors, uh, issued, the, the notice that it's going to happen is issued you know, on a Friday in the middle of August at 5pm, and no one really knows what's happening. The outcome is the same, the development gets built, but I think, in my view, um, that the citizenry of that town see something intrinsically valuable about the fact that first scenario that it's gone through a process that confers legitimacy. Then the, the sort of next step from this part of the argument is that legitimacy is inherently grounded in uh, what, what is seen as fair, appropriate, reasonable, etc. in a given society. And those are inherently values-based and culture-based um, factors and assumptions. So the second reason why, why it matters is around legitimacy. Uh, the third reason is what I called the purpose of politics. And this is that uh, part of the reason, not, not the whole reason, this is not the whole purpose of politics, but one of the reasons that we have a democratic politics and political discussions is to try and resolve values-based arguments. And the fact that there is a values-based disagreement is one of the reasons that an issue becomes political. Now, to sort of illustrate this with a slightly sort of silly example in a way, um, I put up here a picture of a, a Premier League table. It's clearly from some years ago, given that Liverpool were in, in seventh place rather than miles ahead, but uh, that's, that's not really the point. Um, so the Premier League is not a political issue. Who wins, who wins a, a football league is, is very clear and no one argues about it. It's not a matter for politics. Contrast that with another kind of league table, um, school league tables. Now, school league tables are enormously political. Every year when they're published, there's an argument about... Uh, do they measure the right things? Do they put unreasonable pressure on teachers or on children? Um, do, do they actually have league tables at all? Is that, is that appropriate in the sphere of education? And that's an intensely political argument. And I think a lot of the reason that that's political, rather than the football league, which is not, is that there are, there are fundamental questions about, about values, about what is, what is important and what is valuable in the education space. What, what is education for? What, what, what society are we aiming for? What, what is the good society that we are educating uh, children to be members of? And those are a values-based disputes, and you need a political process, ultimately, in a democracy to, to resolve that. Now, clearly, there are other ways of resolving values-based disputes. In a dictatorship, the dictator gets to decide uh, which values um, are, are endorsed. But if, if, you're, if we're not in that kind of um, political system, then resolving values-based disputes is, is fundamental to what we're trying to do in any political and policy-making process, and so therefore it needs to be taken into account. 
My fourth point about why culture and values matter is that I believe governments can't help affect culture and values. Um, sometimes they do it on purpose, but sometimes it's by accident. Now, the picture I've used here to illustrate this is a picture of divided Germany, um, but before the Berlin Wall came down, West Germany, East Germany. And this is a kind of extreme example of how governments can affect culture and values. Uh, you had two states which had very, very different value systems, and particularly in East Germany, a totalitarian state that very, very explicitly, if you look back at some of the things they said and things that were published and what was in the school curriculum, for example, very explicitly tried to affect the values base and the culture of the country. And what's quite interesting here, I think, is that research done um, in the years since reunification has showed there's actually a persistent difference in values and people's uh, agreement or disagreement with, with pretty fundamental kind of ethical value-based statements between people from West, what used to be West Germany and what used to be East Germany. Uh, and one, one set of researchers whose work I, I looked at argued that it, it could well be two generations or more before those values differences are kind of grounded in what the governments had done during the years of division uh, started to, to disappear among, among people in the, the now united Germany. And clearly this is a very extreme case. Most, most governments we're talking about are, um, in, in policymaking are not behaving like totalitarian East Germany. But even um, other, other governments um, which are not totalitarian very consciously try and affect culture and values. And so on the bottom left that picture you see you see France. Now clearly the French government has long had a policy of explicitly promoting uh, French culture and not just the language, but certain sort of cultural approaches and values. And they see that as part of the, the role of the government. Now, there's clearly a sort of argument here, which actually is that a, a, a liberal government shouldn't be in this business. It, um, it shouldn't be going around promoting certain types of cultural values and rather sort of encouraging a, 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 a diverse culture um, that, that evolves in whatever way, whatever way it likes. But I think my, my other point here, which is why the title of the slide is Government Can't Help It, is that when you've got an entity, uh, the state, that is spending 30-40% of GDP, employing millions of people, I, I think it's almost impossible for a government not to affect the culture and values of a country in which it operates. And therefore, I think there's a case of being honest about that and potentially doing it deliberately and actually trying to, to manage that impact and thinking about it in a conscious way rather than have it happen sort of by accident or by omission. So those, that's the first part of the book, and those are the four, the four reasons why I think culture and values matter to policymaking. My next point is to go on to how it affects voting and the political system, and how values are very important for understanding what drives political choice. This picture here, uh, an image that will be familiar to many of you from the 2016 presidential election, a clearly a Trump supporter with a, a build the wall sign, which I'll come on to use as an example in just a minute. So one sort of view of uh, voting and democracy is that people uh, look at what policies a, a party is or candidate is going to advocate and then vote for the one that is most in line with what they think should be implemented. However, I think if we dial back some of the stuff we've already talked about, this view of the world starts becoming a bit problematic. The first point is if we believe that actually a lot of centrally determined policies actually will never be effectively implemented because the street level bureaucrats, the teachers, the police officers, the welfare office workers actually determine what happens on the ground and determines the voters' everyday experience of it. It's not necessarily rational for someone to vote for a, par a party on the basis that something will be implemented when in fact it is quite likely it won't be. 
And this is in fact what most people believe. If you look at research about whether people believe that in general, governments or politicians will implement the policies they say they will, uh, belief in this is pretty low in, in, in many countries. You also thinking about it, if you are going to vote in that way, you need to actually understand what policies a particular party or candidate is advocating. And that's not easy. Um, election manifestos are often 100, 120 pages long with huge numbers of, of, of pledges in them. And you know, even people like me who are very into politics and policy certainly don't know all the policies that are being advocated by a given party. And actually public understanding of what policy a certain party or candidate supports is generally speaking pretty low if you look at some of the polling data. So I think, so we're actually in a world where people are not voting on the basis of understanding a detailed set of policies. And I think therefore it's, it's often more plausible, and there's some evidence to back this up, which I look at in the book, to see voting as more about being on the basis of a broad set of values and a broad set of, set of align, a feeling that a candidate or a party is aligned with your values and your belief on sort of how government should be run in general with policies therefore being a bit of a symbol of that, a symbol of the culture that a, a political leader represents and the kind of set of values they will bring to, to government in general. And this is why I come back to, to Trump and the wall and, and something I found particularly interesting is, so the idea of building a wall and getting Mexico to pay for it was Donald Trump's signature campaign sort of pledge in the 2016 campaign. Um, on the day he was inaugurated, there was an opinion poll was done of people, a representative sample in the US across a whole range of issues. Uh, and one of the things that the pollster asked people was, do you think Donald Trump will actually build a wall and get Mexico to pay for it? And only 14% of respondents to the poll actually believed that he would. So given that he'd just received whatever it was, 46, 48% of the vote, even most of the people voting for Trump didn't believe he would actually ever execute his primary policy objective. Which again, to me illustrates this point about policies sometimes being more of a, a sort of symbol of a kind of an approach to government, I sort of, in this case, kind of breaking the rules, doing things differently, and a sort of values set, not really liking foreigners and immigrants, essentially, in this case, rather than something that people were actually expecting him to implement. Now, the consequence of this is around how values interact with accountability. Um, so I've left up the wall picture and then a rather different kind of accountability device in the bottom corner, which I'll talk, talk to you in a minute. So if, if policies are more symbolic and not really expected to happen, then actually there is sometimes, it's harder to see how political accountability for policy failure really takes place. And if nobody believed Trump was going to build a wall, then people aren't going to hold into account for not doing it because that was never kind of the point in the first place. Um, there's also some work I get into in the book about sort of the direction of causation here between policy failure and, uh, and, and views of a, of a candidate and a party. Because one view of the world is um, you sort of look at whether someone has implemented things properly, and if you think they have, you vote for them, and if you think you haven't, they don't. You, you don't vote for them. Um, the other way around to look at it is whether is that actually there's some evidence that your prior views um, of your sort of alignment in a sort of deeper cultural sense with a particular party or a particular viewpoint actually determines what you think, whether you think the policy was effective or not. And there's some really interesting research here, which I talk about in the book by Catherine Kramer um, in Wisconsin, where she looked at people's views of sort of state government and their views of whether state government spent enough money in their localities. And you might sort of might have expected that uh, you know, in the areas where the government spent less, people might resent the government. 
what she actually found was the, the reverse causality that people there's a group of people who or a large group of people who resented the government anyway because they felt a cultural distance from a government that seems very urban and they were in from the rural edge of the state and that led them to think that the government didn't spend enough money in their localities regardless of any information at all or knowledge about what amount of money the government actually did spend and the government could have spent 10 times the money in their localities and it probably would not have affected the prior view that the government was an alien uh, imposition from, from downstate and that the so the view of the the facts on the ground was determined by the sort of cultural alignment rather than the, the other way around. So th this point is where I, you know, writing the book, um, it, it gets into slight sort of cultural despair mode. You think, well, how, how do you hold anyone accountable if actually um, what actually happens is not terribly relevant? And this is where I start getting into thinking about different forms of accountability and looking at more frontline accountability uh, and uh, in input and uh, data or other methods that actually help the people making the decisions at uh, the front line, the police officers in the case I put on the screen here in the NYPD, and helping them make better decisions and continually improve practice through regular feedback from what's actually going on. And that form of accountability, so it's not accountability in terms of sort of hiring and firing people, but more is what we're doing working, how can we do it better? Um, what's, what's the current experience the people we're working with? It seems to me that that form of regular, immediate, real-time kind of accountability feedback has great, we need to do more of that and possibly worrying slightly less or putting less resources into large long scale macro evaluations that sort of intersect the kind of elite policy level where the political levers around accountability are rather limited given what drives actual voting behavior. So I started here getting into some of the things that maybe we should do differently in this case about accountability mechanisms. And so I'm, in the last bit, I'm gonna talk about a few other things which I think culture and values, taking them seriously means we should do differently in politics. So the first one I think we should talk about is take, taking symbols seriously. Um, certainly when I was in Whitehall, people treated a symbolic policy, or the idea of policy of symbolic as a bit of an insult. It wasn't, wasn't a real policy. And, and I would like to challenge that, challenge that just, just a little bit. So picture some, some statues here. I didn't realise when I was writing this book and sending it to press that statues were about to become a rather important uh, public issue. Uh, so the book doesn't talk about the, the recent events around statues, but it does talk a bit about statues in Eastern Europe, which both of these pictures are. Um, the, the one with the rather large uh, len in there is taken, this is a field on the edge of Sofia in Bulgaria, where after the fall of communism, the, um, the post-communist communist regime took a conscious decision to move Soviet statues into this rather sort of unprepossessing field where people could see them in a very different context. It was sort of symbolic about bringing these sort of heroic Soviet figures kind of down to earth and, and representing a rather different, rather different regime. Uh, the one on the right, this is a, a Soviet war memorial in, in Estonia. Um, and you know, the seriousness of uh, statues and other sort of symbolic issues has shown um, in Estonia, um, public policy around statues has several times caused large scale mass riots. And this is particularly around um, the, the um, uh, these sort of um, issues around the, the relation between Russia, Russia and Estonia. And so these, these are just examples of how I think actually policy being symbolic and dealing with symbols shouldn't be an insult. It's actually important and government, it's legitimate for government to try and manage symbols which carry cultural and value-based meaning. And I think that implies that government sometimes needs some different skill sets, more anthropologists and psychologists perhaps, than we often see in government at the moment. So, the se second um, issue I think we should take seriously is around decentralization and localism. 
Um, here I've got a rather beautiful picture of Rochdale Town Hall, beautiful Victorian Gothic building, a similar kind of local power and control over all sorts of areas of policy that perhaps is rather less so now than when it was built um, back in the Victorian era. And again, so some of the points I've made about culture, particularly local frontline culture, driving service performance, could in one, in one way point you towards trying to do more locally and actually central government where accountability perhaps doesn't work and the chains of implementation down to the front line are limited, actually trying to do a bit less. Now, um, one point in my career in the cabinet office, I was involved in a review of local government and local service delivery to try and look at ways we could do more of that. And it, it was frankly a bit of a failure and no one, no one really liked it. And, and there were two major objections that were put to why we couldn't do more locally. Uh, one was the, the view of the, of the postcode lottery. Um, we can't have different service quality across the country. That, that's not acceptable. And the second major objection being around accountability, which I've talked about before, which was that um, even if you give power locally, when something goes wrong, the blame would end up back on the desk of the minister in Whitehall. So we don't really want to do that. And I would argue that some of the things I've already covered in the talk actually push against both of those objections to a more local approach. On the postcode lottery, um, my view is that the postcode lottery is inevitable. Once you think about the importance of the culture of local delivery systems and delivering any of the sort of complex services like public health, education, crime prevention, all these kind of things, a postcode lottery is essentially inevitable because of the different norms and practices that grow up in different local delivery vehicles. And I think you can see this even in pretty centralized bits of the state. An example I talk about in the book is, is the Job Center Plus network, which is ultimately run out of DWP in a reasonably, reasonably centralized way, um, you see very wide variation in practice at a local level. And so I think the postcode lottery needs to be embraced and recognized rather than pushed back against. On the accountability point, as I've already argued, um, what central government politicians get held accountable for is actually a bit random. It's, it's, it's driven uh, by a sense of alignment with values or a broad sense of competence perhaps a broad sense of what direction these people take in the country rather than specific policy outcomes which people rarely understand which part of government is accountable for them or not so i think objecting to local delivery on the grounds that the center will be held accountable it rests on a kind of rather clear and linear view of central accountability that i don't believe actually comes out in practice my third thing we should do or we can think about doing more is think about building organizations any of you who work in an organization will know that an organization is a carrier of culture and values and so we can think about doing this as a policy tool uh, this picture here is of some uh, uh, around uh, traditional adverts for building societies and um, in the middle of a coventry economic building society I, I still have a savings account with the coventry building society and i think they're a great example of a kind of institution that was built with a very explicit values base at their, at their heart and there's a lot of interesting evidence of how over quite a sustained period of time the building society movement behaved differently than other financial institutions and um, rooted in the sense of values and culture that they were, were built on. And then clearly the demutualization of those unwound some of those values and ended up with Northern Rock and various other unfortunate events. And in the book, I talk about sort of three levels of how building organizations can be thought of as a policy tool. There's sort of direct creation of a government organization with new kinds of values or culture. A good example of this would be anti-corruption commissions, which are often being set up alongside traditional bureaucracy to kind of tackle endemic corruption in, in certain countries with a different culture being built in from the start. 
The second example is sort of arm's length bodies from the sort of state linked, but a bit arm's length, which have been set up in a different way to try and create a different culture where in the UK, sort of academies and free schools are a good example of this, where a different culture in the school is a, and sort of school management was a clear policy objective. Whether or not we agree with that is another debate for another day, but it, it was clearly a policy objective um, when it was brought in. And the third type is more like this building society model where the government can facilitate civil society, um, creating different organisations with different cultures, um, but rather than the state doing it directly. So I think when you, when you have culture and values as a policy objective, building organisations to carry those is an interesting thing to think about. My final point is around how evidence and the use of evidence in policymaking fits into this narrative around culture and values. Now, there's a, an image that's familiar to everyone recently, um, the, the two senior scientific advisors flanking the PM at one of his recent press conferences. And I think um, the, the recent uh, COVID-19 situation has been a really interesting example of debate about the role of evidence and science in, in policymaking. And there's a couple of sort of things I want to just sort of uh, dwell, on, dwell on here. Um, one is the, when you start thinking about the, the culture of government institutions, um, it, it's sort of almost an obvious point that evidence or science doesn't, doesn't sort of land in a vacuum. It lands into an existing set of worldviews, assumptions, values, and prejudices um, held by the policymakers and the people using it. And Paul Kearney's work um, is particularly important in sort of illustrating this in a lot more detail than I, I can today or, or in the book. Um, but I think that there is that understanding the intersection between evidence and the culture of the organisation trying to use the evidence is very important to understanding how evidence can actually be used in, in policy. <clears throat> the other point, and back to the, uh, the press conference here, is how um, the role of evidence can in and of itself be a sort of symbolic part of policy debate as much as a substantive one. Uh, the government in this period that we've got in the picture here kept talking about following the science and, and that was probably as much a, a sort of narrative and a sort of device for convincing the public about the sort of approach that the, that the government was taking, science-led, rather than necessarily meaning there was a particular body of scientific evidence that was very clearly mapping the way forward, as with a novel global pandemic, there clearly, clearly wasn't. Um, <clears throat> I think there's another final point I want to make on this around sort of what an appeal to evidence and expertise means, and that that is in itself a sort of culturally loaded kind of term. So uh, when there's all the debate about we've had, had enough of experts in the Brexit referendum and so on, or others saying we need to listen to the experts. I think it's worth sort of remembering that that is, is loaded with a kind of set of assumptions about who the experts are. Um, it is an appeal to expertise, actually an appeal to listen to people like me or to listen to a particular type of person or from a particular cultural background, a particular set of assumptions, uh, rather than necessarily having some sort of neutral and objective, objective weight. So evidence and science and expertise are, are sort of loaded with value systems and need to be considered in the policy process in, the, in that light. So that is, that is where I've got to, uh, and that, that, is, that is coming to the end here. So I've been through why cultural values matter to policy, how that affects politics and accountability, some ideas for things we should think about differently as a result, um, and hopefully given you all some ideas and inspired you to read the book, a picture of which is here. Now it's clear that cultural values are not everything in policymaking, it's one, it's one framework, uh, and one sort of set of prompts, but it's a framework I found very useful for illustrating uh, some phenomena that I've come across during my career as a policymaker. So thank you all very much for listening. At this point, I'll stop sharing the screen and hand over back to Nick and to Jill.
Thanks very much, uh, Stephen. Okay, Nick, do you want me to fire Please away? Do. Sorry, I'm just trying to start my video and couldn't, but over <laughs> to you. Do, uh, do start firing away. Thank you. Okay, Nick is going to keep firing away. We want to make sure you've got lots of time for questions. So I'm just going to uh, cast out some random comments. First of all, can I congratulate Stephen uh, and thank him for writing this book? Because actually one of the sort of voices we really never hear in this debate about policymaking is people who've done a lot of it. And to reflect actually on their experience of policymaking, I think is a hugely valuable contribution. We have an academic literature on that, but by and large, those people are externals. We see a lot from politicians about how they went about policymaking. If you read Nigel Lawson's massive autobiography, you'll discover that every right decision he made, every wrong decision was made by a lot of other people, uh, which is clearly a flawed process. So it's really great to have Stephen's reflections on that. And I think it's very interesting though, because one of the, uh, jobs that Stephen did was in the Prime Minister's strategy unit. And you could always regard that Tony Blair strategy unit almost as the, not quite reductio ad absurdum, but maybe the zenith of a very technocratic approach to policymaking. And I think Stephen's book is something of a reaction against that. And we've seen that in other colleagues who suddenly discovered that technocracy is not enough. What I thought was really interesting about Stephen's book was it talks about policy makers, but I'm not sure that that sort of helps our debate because I think it's best to understand policymaking in the UK as a co-production. In Whitehall, it's very much a co-production between the, what the US would call the elected officials, the uh, politicians, the ministers. And I think we've always depended on them in a sense to be the people who bring the values. I don't think any politician would be surprised to discover actually that there's a lot of values in deciding who people vote to. People don't remember the 500 plus manifesto commitments. Indeed, most politicians are a bit surprised by some of their manifesto commitments sometime. Uh, they you know, realize that this is quite a sort of tribal vote. It used to be based on class identity. I think we've increasingly seen it aligning around values. And if you're interested in that, uh, there's some very interesting work published last week by UK in the Ch uh, Changing Europe called Mind the Values Gap uh, by Tim Bale, Alan Wager and Philip Cowley. Highly recommend that if you're interested in how close parties are to their voters' values. And, uh, really, really interesting material there uh, for both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. So I think we've tended to rely on politicians bringing values in and uh, setting priorities, deciding how to approach issues. And I do think politicians actually are conscious that quite a lot of the policy interventions they make are about trying to reshape society. One of the big policies you can imagine if you go back beyond Stephen's time in government to the Thatcher era, which definitely was a government that was about reshaping the economy, but also reshaping society. There were big moves. I remember and a colleague of mine in the treasury talking about presenting Nigel Lawson, now gets his second message, slightly mentioned slightly surprisingly, about the economic case for the privatization program. And Nigel Lawson said, actually, I don't care about the economic case. Uh, we just think these things should be in the private sector. And I'm not interested in your long-term discounted cash flow, whether the public sector is slightly better off if we keep telecommunications inside the public sector or privatize it. 
Ditto with, I think, what was one of the biggest social changes introduced by the Thatcher government, which was the council house sales. But I'm not sure any policy evaluation would have put on it that the explicit objective was to create more conservative voters. But that was definitely a very big subtext. So I think we do do culture and we do do values. We may not recognize it. Uh, where I'm not with Stephen in quite the same way is putting this at the heart of policy making. I think it's a vitally important piece of the picture to understand, and I think policy making goes wrong when policymakers fail to understand the cultural context, the values context, but also, and I would say there, some of the bits of the delivery context. Uh, Stephen gave an example of why a change might not be delivered on the ground as being about the culture of different people. But it could also just be failing to understand that people have very little bandwidth for making changes. Policymakers find it very easy to write loads and loads of guidance, much harder if you're on the ground to have to deal with that. So I think we need to take those sorts of constraints into account as well. But what I wanted to do was say, actually, if I accept some of Stephen's thesis at least, what do I do with it as a policymaker? Um, the bit actually that I have the most problem with is his idea of taking symbols seriously. I think that can play out in one of two ways. I think it is important to understand where people are. It helps to craft the narrative, which is a key part of the policymaking process. And it helps to understand that people really do attach importance to things like fairness. Indeed, there may be one or two totemic things that people require you to do even though it's not going to be instrumental in bringing about change. But then I think it's very important that you do make clear to people that this is a values-based decision uh, that you are doing for symbolic reasons. Do not present, pretend that symbols will drive non-symbolic change. Make it clear why you're doing things. He gives the example in his book of the married couple's tax allowance, which is a fine thing to do if you want to signal married people, I like you, I want to tax you less, it's not a fine thing to do or you open up a whole different range of questions if you suggest that that really is going to drive huge number of people who otherwise wouldn't do to get married. So be careful about symbols. So you, know, you do have to deliver some policy results in the end. And I think on his point about people not being held accountable for delivering outcomes, I think you might look at, uh, at certainly the way in which the electorate reacted against the failure to get Brexit done as a source of increasing frustration at policymakers they saw not following through on their wishes. So there are some issues that cut through. I can see a case for decentralization. I can also see a case against decentralization. I live less than a mile from Grenfell Tower. I think Grenfell is a very good example of the fact that just because it's local doesn't mean it's good. So be careful about thinking about that as a very easy prescription. I agree with Stephen though, Whitehall policymakers, both politicians and their civil servants should take organisations much more seriously. A lot of what we do is about building organisations, but we do it in a very casual, uninformed way. We ought to get more serious about that and really think through some of those things. It is stunning how little evidence there, base there is about how you construct successful organisations and how you set up organisations determine how they act. That's certainly something that we need to add to the policymaking toolkit. And finally, on evidence, I think it's very important, uh, as Stephen said, to widen out our view of what evidence matters. Uh, I think one of the reasons that people in Whitehall have struggled very much to deal with Brexit 
is we have a very economistic approach to evidence that's widened out a bit recently with the work of the Havel Insights team to realize that not everybody is a rational policymaker, but there are definitely far more sorts of evidence that should be taken into account and we need to take much more seriously evidence from the front line and the evidence of experience and that will help us enhance the policymaking toolkit. So my bottom line is I wouldn't say culture and values should displace the rest of uh, the way in which we approach policymaking, either as politicians or as, uh, as official policymakers, but we should definitely recognise that they will affect our chances of success and we need to take them properly into account. And I'm going to leave it for questions there. Great, thank you very much indeed, Jill. That's a really helpful set of um, issues and challenges actually to Stephen. And Stephen, we've got a, a whole bunch of questions, so I'm going to fire some at you to start and then I'm going to bring Jill back in in a bit as well. Uh, and there's a few which are around the question of um, uh, the questions that Jill raised about how governments can set values uh, or change cultures or drive cultural change, how far it's within the gift of governments to do that. Uh, and the converse challenge there, which is what happens when societies are incredibly polarized and diverse, when you know the, the when when you can't get agreement around core values or where the, the level of polarization is such that it's incredibly hard to do so. Do you want to take those two first, Stephen? Uh, yeah, okay. Um, and thank you very much, Jill, for, for your comments. Um, on, on the first one about uh, sort of how governments affect and drive values, actually, I'm really glad you, Jill, raised the prioritization point and the fact that Nigel Lawson explicitly saw that as a kind of values based or an attempt to change culture towards entrepreneurship and the private sector in the UK. So I think, I think it's actually a fantastic example of um, where that, that was really the objective. Though pretty, I, I, could own, I looked very hard, I could only ever find any evaluations of that policy all about economics and what happened to the rate of investment in the telecom industry or the water industry. And I, I searched pretty hard and couldn't find any sort of very few serious evaluations of did it actually have the values-based or culture-based impact that Nigel Lawson was trying to have. So I think one of my points here is that government should be honest when that's, as Jill says, it should be honest when that's what it's trying to do. As it is trying to change goals and actually try and measure that and try and work out whether it's working or not. I think part of the problem at the moment is that um, we, we make sort of assumptions about when a policy might have a values-based or symbolic or cultural effect, but actually we're, we're not very good, I don't think, at understanding whether that's worked or not. Um, and whether we've actually um, designed the policy in such a way that it, it will in fact have that, have that kind of impact. Uh, so I think there's, there's a, lot, a lot to do there. Um, on the point about polarisation, yeah, I think this is, this is a really tricky bit, uh, and I certainly don't claim to have the answers. Um, I, I, but I think you can probably um, structure sort of dialogue and rhetoric in a way that uh, pushes against polarization rather than making it worse when talking about values-based issues. Um, I mentioned the book, the example of the uh, debate in Ireland over the referendum to do with changing the abortion laws, which obviously is sort of the epitome of a values-based issue. It goes right to the heart of people's sort of sense of themselves, society, faith, and so on. And although it was a divisive and difficult debate, I, I think there's a case for saying the Irish society and government handled that in a way that's been very constructive. There was, there was a, that big sort of public, sort of, sort of consultative kind of democratic process around it. 
Um, and actually it's a way that society appears to be able to sort of move on a, a potentially extremely divisive and polarizing issue in a way that's quite interesting. Um, but I do think that's where it gets really hard. I mean, you know, the, the riots I talked about in Estonia of those statues, that, that was a good example of how you know, a, 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 a sort of real division between people who felt Russian and people who felt Estonian essentially sort of played out uh, when you started trying to address symbolic issues. So I certainly don't have a, a magic bullet answer on that one. So, um, there's a couple of questions here which relate to the, the sort of source of values in policymaking. One which is about uh, what happens when civil servants have uh, different uh, or different values perhaps to uh, many of those in the wider society. Uh, you know, is there a problem, for example, over Brexit where civil servants generally speaking believed to be sort of pro-Remain? Uh, and then a related question to that, which is what from Julie McRae, which is about how values come into a policymaking process from the outside. So the sort of challenge to values that are held perhaps within centres of power and the source of new forms of value change. Um, Jill, can I just ask you before I go to Stephen, just on this question of, you know, do civil servants, you know, broadly speaking, sort of share a set of values and what happens if, if that's true? Do they end up clashing with those in the wider society, perhaps, you know, exposed by things like a referendum? I think Brexit's come as a big shock, I think, to the civil service. Uh, and it's a sort of almost a wake up call about various things. So I think what you get is more of a sort of not sure it's quite values, uh, more of a sort of commonality of outlook um, that you sort of, you know, think things, you know, that these things matter and that people will take a certain approach. And there's a bit of a sort of reinforcement because the other people you know and you spend your time with take that approach. And I think, I know uh, we did a very interesting interview uh, a couple of weeks ago with Philip Rycroft, who used to be the Permanent Secretary of the Department of Ex in the EU who was talking about the massive shock of the sort of disconnect between the Brexit vote and the sort of, you know, quite economically rational views that civil servants by and large hold. And I've heard civil servants say, one of the things that has been very difficult for us in dealing with Brexit is when, you know, I didn't come into government to do things that I thought would be economically harmful. And that's been one of the sort of you know, real problems is that people know they have to do Brexit. They know that's what they're voting for. They know that's what ministers want. But people still slightly balk at the, uh, but actually, did people really understand? Did they really vote for, to be poor? The sort of stuff Philip Hammond said. So I think that's been problem, uh, problem rather than the sort of resistance per se. But there is also then a problem. This goes a bit to some of um, Stephen's stuff about symbolism. I think there is a bit of a problem when people say things can be done, and we're seeing this play out now. Yesterday, the government published its detail of how the border would operate in Brexit. This has been a sort of big, you know, something the Remainers were saying, this is extraordinary difficult stuff. You are introducing all these new frictions. We went through a long time when David Davis, as Brexit secretary, was saying, we can get the exact same benefits of trading on new terms with the EU. And everybody else was saying, you know, Remainers were saying, no, you can't. And I think that's a really difficult thing is when you get uh, symbolic denialism, uh, when people say we can do this and there's no downside, there's no price to it and things like that. And I think that makes the position of policymakers, you know, civil servants caught in the middle extraordinarily difficult. Um, and I think that's been one of the issues they've confronted over Brexit quite a lot. I'll pass over to Stephen now. No, th th thanks, Jill. I, I certainly won't um, comment on the on the um, Brexit uh, area because Jill has 
definitely the expert on that rather than me, but on the question about how values sort of get into the system from outside, I think this is a, a really important one. And what I think certainly in my Whitehall experience, we often weren't terribly good at. Um, and I think <clears throat> quite a lot of our central government structures are not particularly well set up for understanding the kind of values of yeah groups that are different in many different ways and more diverse from from the the, the uh, set of people often around those those tables and i think um, so a good example of where this was and i, I refer in the book to um the fantastic book which i'd recommend to anyone um radical help by hillary cotton and some of the uh, experiments that she and her team ran in, in working with people uh, facing certain particular particular challenges, some out of long-term unemployment, long-term health conditions, which and it's very interesting stuff there about sort of starting the framing of the problem or the issue from the perspective of um, the individuals who they're trying to work with, and almost sort of putting on one side some of the structural um, assumptions and worldviews that were tending to come with with anyone who's who's trying to solve the problem. And, and, and I think the, the sort of the decentralization point actually helped there with that. If you're trying to do things quite small scale, it's easier to bring bring some of that input than it than it can be. And just to give one, one sort of interesting example where another government has tried to do this recently, it's quite interesting in um, in, in Germany in their um, response to the, the COVID crisis, their equivalent of SAGE um, has involved a much broader range of sort of scientific expertise. They've involved anthropologists, they've involved um, people uh, who are sort of more, although we have some psychologists involved in the UK, but, but more um, they involve theologians and ethicists um, that actually explicitly look at those sort of values based challenges, including from very different uh, perspectives in German society. So I, that's the kind of elite way of doing it, but it's definitely a, a broader range of perspectives that will tune into different types of values, different ways of thinking about values, and I think we've, we've managed to do which I, I, I maybe I'm biased, I'm a Germanophile, but I think it's a very interesting way of approaching things, which uh, brings a different dimension. I suppose another uh, aspect of that question, Stephen, is when um, uh, institutions embody values that systematically discriminate against the perspectives of members of their society or may embody uh, values which are hostile to those interests. So, and that's been obviously a huge issue this summer with uh, Black Lives Matter. And there's a number of questions here pertaining to those points, what happens when institutions embody systemically uh, values which are discriminatory or practices which discriminate against members of the population depending on you know, certain characteristics um, like ethnicity, race or class. What about those sorts of things there, Stephen, about, about those questions of uh, institutional discrimination? Yeah, I, I think um, for if you're looking for kind of the policy levers to try and address some of those sort of structural problems, I think one of the big dilemmas, and I don't have an answer to this one, is do you um, try and reform the existing structure or build something new to try and supplant it? Uh, I think you've seen some of, this, some of the debate about police reform actually in the US at the moment particularly, is, and the sort of a group of people are saying actually we need to sweep away the whole sort of structure of American policing because it's fundamentally uh, discriminatory it, it, sort of in, in its roots and build something completely different and others saying actually there's some really some radical thing, things we can do within the current structure in a more radical way and, and so back to the, sort of the point about building institutions and organizations I think I, you know, it's slightly horses to courses this one but and while I was, I was writing I had um, yeah, a discussion with some some colleagues who are working on sort of the international development field maybe on the, on the call today about uh, the choice between you know, do you try and reform the existing bureaucracy which is riddled with kind of corruption discrimination against certain ethnic groups and this other thing or actually if you've got to build something new you start small but the new thing 
it's clearly better and start working and working, building support among groups who previously alienated from the state, then actually it can sort of start to grow and supplant the, the, the old thing that, that, that is, is inherently structurally um, discriminatory. And say, I don't think there's a one size fits all answer to that, but it's quite a big strategic choice for any kind of reformer to change, change the existing structure or build a new thing and, and supplant outwards. I, um, Nick, I just want to come in that I, I saw there was a question from Colin Yeo about hostile environment, which I think is very interesting. The Institute for Government very rarely recommends machinery of government changes. But we did, when we did some work on migration, look at the Home Office and think, actually, the Home Office has now got itself into such a mindset, uh, which leads to things like hostile environment, that maybe you did need to really rethink how we framed immigration. But this is one of my sort of concerns about Stephen's values domination, is I'm not sure that the Home Office actually, in policies like that, not as far as it went in sort of, you know, deporting people who are very legitimate here, but a lot of the rhetoric about hostile environment, never a policy that survived a single evaluation on its effectiveness as a sort of tool for controlling immigration, was actually speaking to a values that there are people who come here and take advantage and are benefiting from public services unnecessarily. And that's one of my worries about overcompensating and saying we must have values driven policy, because you could say that's actually quite a good example of a rather non-evidence-based but very values-driven symbolic policy and that is maybe where you end up if you take some of Stephen's arguments to their logical place. Stephen, do you want to come back on that? And the point that Jill raised at the end there also about symbols, there's some, some questions on whether symbols are important or not. Some people are saying actually in, in certain contexts symbolic change can be incredibly powerful and lead to further changes in outcomes. You know, Northern Ireland situation referred to there, you might say the same for uh, what's happening in the states at the moment with Black Lives Matter and the whole debate about statues of course um, you know you raised that in your presentation too. How far that those sorts of um, uh, you know picking up that point from Jill that uh, sometimes the values that you're uh, embodying in a policy are nefarious nothing to do with efficacy of policy it's just uh, a particular yeah I, I, on that point I completely take that point and I think the, um, uh, the, the approaches of taking values seriously and thinking about values different policies can be used for lots of different ends and some of them may be quite unpleasant um i suppose yeah i use the example of trump trump and his wall because i, I think he I think he's rather good at some of this stuff uh, and and uh you know a lot of us don't agree with a lot of the things that he that he stands for so um i, I think um like any policy tool, uh, you can use some of these approaches for some, some pretty lead some pretty unpleasant consequences um which a lot of us might think are un unpleasant consequences. Um, in terms of those symbols and the power and some of the, yeah, I mean, I think I, you mentioned Northern Ireland, I think that's a great example of where actually thinking very hard about symbols and the symbolism of certain actions has been absolutely essential to a lot of the change that's happened in, in Northern Ireland. It remains sort of an incredibly important part of the politics. And I think as part of what I'm making is a slightly more sort of insider policy geek point is that uh, we, policymakers as a sort of whoever the policymakers are you know, define who that is but people should just get better at thinking about it and be more professional and sort of systematic and explicit and honest about the fact that a lot of things are symbolic symbolic but symbols do matter they have huge impact or they can do if they're done right or indeed if they're done wrong as, as Jill just talked about and so you need to take that seriously and sort of educate train policymakers have all the main policymakers thinking about this stuff so on your you know, a master's of public policy course, I think it's probably a slightly less marginal economics and slightly more anthropology and 
building building long-term narratives that affect affect culture because actually sometimes you can you can have more impact that way okay i'm um, just a, a final couple of questions um Stephen, which relate to democratic institutions and institutional change. Uh, one question is, well, how do you distinguish between organisations which feel a bit more short term and institutions? And when you're coming to talk about values, do we need to embody them in democratic institutions or in means of engaging citizens? So a written constitution obviously embodies certain values, has a preamble, has values running through its articles. Uh, or things like citizens' assemblies increasingly used by local authorities and governments around the world to try to overcome value divides and lead to more reasoned policy uh, uh, goals or recommendations. Can you say a little bit about that set of questions? Yes, and, and I, I will try. And this is a bit I didn't get into in lots of detail in the book. I think there's probably a sort of another wave of thinking about what are the implications for institutional design, practice and structures of, of this kind of thinking. Um, I, so I think I'll, to take it very slightly differently, I, I think what's clear to me is there's implications for and sort of the practice of politics and political dialogue and rhetoric and narrative um, around being more honest about where and Jill alludes this around the sort of married couples taxing being honest where something is symbolic and where governments are attempting to change cultures and values and setting up our sort of institutions in the wider sense including kind of norms of communication and practice and debate that, that that's that's an okay debate to have i, I think we, we we sometimes uh we, we all and i count myself as guilty as well are more comfortable talking about is this going to increase gdp by 4.2 percent or 3.9 percent then is this is this actually what we think is fair and is this the good society or, or is this is it something rather different and is this policy are we actually doing this not because it's going to increase gdp by whatever but because it sends a message that we care about something and we've actually thought about what that message is and this is definitely the right way to send that message which is the other part of it i think um we don't think as seriously about those things both at a sort of institutional level not just at a sort of policy making level so i think so not, not totally directly asking your answer your question there's something about the the overall practice of politics and policy making being honest and open that these issues are really important and need to be taken seriously what that means in terms of kind of whether you use certain deliberative forums or how you structure the constitution. I think there's a load of really interesting stuff there. Where a lot of people know a lot more about it than I do, and I hope they'll uh, do some thinking about it and come up with some ideas. Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. I'm afraid we're uh, almost out of time now. Um, thank you, everybody, for uh, watching the event and contributing today and uh, tabling your questions. I hope we've answered as many of them as possible. We've had rather more than perhaps we could have answered. Uh, but if you do have any follow-ups, Stephen is on Twitter, at Stephen Muirs. So ping him on Twitter if you want a more specific follow-up to the question you've raised. And again, I, I hope I covered most of them. Uh, uh, but if, if we didn't, do follow up with Stephen directly. Uh, thank you, Jill. Thanks very much indeed, Jill, for responding to Stephen's presentation and for your uh, contributions and comments too. It's really much appreciated. Um, and just to say, um, if you have you know, been watching today, uh, you're also eligible to purchase Stephen's book from Policy Press at a discounted rate. So I have to say that at the end, a little advertorial for the book itself. If you haven't already bought it uh, and you signed up today, then you get a discount. Uh, just keep an eye on your emails for the relevant code and a link to doing so. So uh, thank you again, Stephen. Thanks for sharing your uh, new book with us, the launch of a new, a new book. And, and uh, thank you for engaging so well with the debate. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for everybody for uh, watching uh, and do keep in touch with the Institute for Policy Research at the University of Bath. We have a lot of events, lots we do online, and I hope they'll be of interest to you in the future. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, Jill. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye, everyone.